The Word of God comes to us this morning from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 40. Reading through verse 47. Let me just warn you ahead of time that uh, this is one of those passages that uh, this particular translation of the Word of God really mangles the original text in trying to communicate it to us in English. We'll have to uh, make note of that at a couple of points at least in the course of the sermon. Uh, Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 40 and reading through verse 47. This is God's Word. It's our privilege then to hear it this morning. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." So far the reading of God's Holy Word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Acts, even though Jesus is now in heaven, He is continuing, isn't He, by His Spirit and through His apostles to give the world a little foretaste of what is coming after He has finished recreating it in the glorification. After He is finished exercising His mighty power to reverse the sickening curse that is in the world because of the sin of our first father Adam, because of our willing participation in the propagation of that curse throughout history ever since our first father Adam, when Jesus is finished exercising His gracious power to reverse the curse, all things that were bad will have been made good all of the sufferings in the world that are the consequence ultimately of the fall of mankind, all of those things will be undone. The curse will be overthrown. Jesus is continuing by His Spirit through His apostles to give humanity a foretaste of what is going on. For example, if people are sick, the apostles come in the power of Christ and they miraculously heal them just like Jesus was doing in the Gospels. You see this in verse 43. This continued, right, in the early church. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So part of the reason for that was Jesus was giving humanity a foretaste of what was coming. But you see, these miraculous establishments of the kingdom of Christ in the world would not continue along forever. Those miraculous deeds would die out along with the apostles. And even the deeds themselves 
that the apostles were doing by the power of Christ came to an end in terms of their effect. Because people that were even, say, raised from the dead or people that were healed from sickness eventually went on to die. So there was another reason why Jesus, by His Spirit, through the apostles, continued to work these miraculous signs. It was in order, obviously, to verify to everybody who was hearing the message of the apostles, to give a demonstration to everybody who was hearing the apostles preach and teach, to everybody who was watching this group grow together and worship this man named Jesus Christ, it was to give a demonstration by the miraculous power of God that what they were saying was true. Okay, so that when people heard the apostles preaching, they would believe it, not just because it was objectively true and the Spirit opened their hearts. Of course, that's what's going on. But one of the means by which the Spirit is opening their hearts is the apostles in the power of Christ, working the wonders and miraculous signs. What is it that the apostles were saying? That the truth of which was demonstrated by the powerful deeds which they were working. Well, they were preaching the law, weren't they? They were preaching that people were guilty. And when they preached that people were guilty, and people saw the miraculous signs, they realized that the power of God was at work in them and that they better listen. And many of those people were cut to the heart and recognized that they were sinners and that they were enemies of God and that they better be reconciled to Him before the judgment came. And then they were also preaching the Gospel, weren't they? They weren't just cutting people to the heart and leaving them in their despair, but they were proclaiming that Christ came for sinners, for people who have been rebels against the Lord. And He died to take away their penalty. And He rose from the dead for their justification. That's the proof that God accepted all of His obedience. And then He'll reward them with Christ's obedience and for Christ's obedience. That's what they were hearing. And that's what people were believing when the power of God was at work in the lives of the apostles. And this is what's happening in this story, isn't it? You see just an amazing number of people coming to the knowledge of the truth being woken up out of their blindness and sins and ignorance and fleeing to Christ. Verse 41, those who accepted His message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now keep in mind, this is an organized church under apostolic authority, right? This is a group that is identifiable to others. They are numbered. They have church membership. You're all familiar with that system. You're a part of it, right? This is what the church is. It's an official organized community. And the apostles are preaching from the church about the truth of what the church believes. And people are repenting and putting their faith and trust. They're professing faith, as it were, and saying, yes, that is what I believe too. And they join the number. And we see that the Lord is the one who is causing this, right? He is the one adding to the church's number. It's not the church you know, on their own getting people to come in. It's the Lord who's working sovereignly to draw His elect into the church. He is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. People are coming to the knowledge of the truth. That's what's happening here. Jesus is enlisting people for the great day of glorification. He's undoing the curse. Now, in all of the lives of the people that came to the truth in the book of Acts, He was not working miracles for. There were some, to be sure, but not all of them. Many of them are in the position like we are in today where we have been enlisted for that great day of glorification when all of the 
consequences of our sins will be taken away. All of our sinful inclinations will be taken away. All of our physical ills and ailments and our deaths will be taken away completely, will be restored. We will not feel any more alienated and dissatisfied. We will be comfortable and peaceful finally. We're waiting for that great glorification day just like some of them in that church were when they did not experience in their bodies, say, any miraculous healing. But they were being enlisted into the great day of glorification. They're brought into the church. They're marked as those who will be received at the last day by the Father. And they're excited about it, aren't they? They're looking forward to the glorification. This is what Jesus is doing. He is gathering people to Himself that He will glorify at the end. Through faith in Him. But that's not all that Jesus is doing. And this is very important for us to understand. Jesus is also here informing the church. He's not just enlisting people for the great day of glorification which is coming. Well, He'll unleash His power in them but He's also forming this group, those who have been enlisted as the ones who will receive the glorification. He is forming this group. He is shaping them as the tool that He is going to use even after the apostles die off the scene. Okay, He is forming them as the tool that will bring others who have yet to come in into the faith, onto the list that will receive the glorification, and also he is forming this church as the tool that business will be about caring for those who have already been enlisted for participation in that great day. So it's not just that he's bringing people together and will glorify them someday, but he brings them together and then makes them the tool to bring others in and makes them the tool that he is going to use even after the apostles die off. And even today, for the care and the instruction of those who have been enlisted for the glorification. So they're going to go out and receive others into their midst as the tool of Christ, and they're also going to care for each other and instruct each other along the way until the great day of glorification. This is evidently the purpose for which the church has been established by Christ. Now remember that we said, as we're going to go forward today and look at how the church was carrying out these purposes of caring and instructing their own and also of reaching out and bringing others in, when we see how that looks, remember that we said when we're reading about the history of the early church, it's not just something for us to look at and sort of be interested in how Jesus did things in the past, but the history in the book of Acts of the church is prescriptive for us. That means that we are look. We are to look at Jesus working by His Spirit in shaping the church for the purposes that He shaped it. We're to see what they were doing and then we are to model ourselves after what the early church was doing. I mean, it seems like an obvious point, right? If Jesus by His Spirit is shaping the church to look a certain way and to do particular things, then we ought to follow the will of Christ by the example of the church that was being formed under the direct instruction of the apostles. Now, the particular passage that we have before us today makes this even easier for us to see, that this is prescriptive. And the way you can see this is by thinking about the style that Luke writes in. And here's where the translation makes it difficult for us, so we'll have to take a minute to explain it. If you think about the structure, okay, first of all, the early part of the book of Acts, there are these great events that mark the history of the early church. We've already seen one. 
One of them is the great day of Pentecost, right? And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the great sermon that Peter preaches on that day, the miraculous sign of the the tongues going forward. This is one great event. Now, as we go along, we'll see a few more great events. We'll see the healing of a lame man, a powerful display of the power of Christ in the church, right? Later on, we'll see this penetrating judgment in the church by God of Ananias and Sapphira. Two people who professed faith and made a vow to the Lord and forsook it and forsook that vow and the Lord struck them dead. So we see these great events throughout the history of the early church that Luke is recording for us in the book of Acts. But here's the key. Interspersed between, especially these three great events in the early part of the book of Acts, we have these descriptions that are set off about what the church was doing in general. So Luke says, I want to I highlight for you maybe three of the great things that are going on or three of the, the major events. I mean, here's Pentecost. Here is a lame man being healed. Here is Ananias and Sapphira being judged. But in between those events, Luke sets off his story by giving these broader descriptions of the daily activities of the church or the week-by-week even activities of the church or the activities that characterized what the church was doing, what the church was all about. Now, the way he sets it off is not like in our paragraphs in English. I mean, he may have done that on the original autograph. Who knows how he wrote? But the copies that we have are all run together with all the lines. And the way we know that Luke was setting off those particular descriptions is he started to write in different verb tense. Okay, and we don't have to get into it technically uh, to explain it very simply, but if you just look in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 40, I'll show it to you quickly. With many other words, he warned them. This is Peter. Warned is used just in a simple past tense, you could say. And he pleaded with them. Again, simple past tense. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. It's a a past tense. And about 3,000 were added. It's a past tense, regular word. To their number in that day. And then you come to verse 42. They devoted themselves... And the other translations which do it better will translate it, they continually devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Devoted is not in a simple past tense. It's in imperfect, meaning this. It's implying that it was something that was going on continually. All of the descriptions in verses 42 through 47 about what the church was doing are in the imperfect tense, meaning that you are supposed to see when you read this that this was the regular activity of the church. Now, in one sense, that's self-evident from the content, but Luke wants you to be very careful when you read this, and you'll come to passage in Acts 4, 32-35, and another one in chapter 5, verses 12-16, through 16, where between these great events, there is this Luke taking a step back and giving you a picture characterizing what the church looked like. So if you want to know what the church was doing, Luke says, you may not want to look to these extraordinary events, right? Because they have their particular place in redemptive history. But if you want to know what the early church was doing, and if you want to follow the will of Christ and model your own church, and each of us as individual members of that church, after what Christ wants us to do by His Spirit through the apostles, then look at these summaries. This is the place where you understand this is what the church has been called to do. This is what they were doing. That's what's going on here in verses 42 through 47. This is what characterizes the Christian church. And so here's the point. This morning, we're going to be confronted directly with Christ's pattern for what it means to be the church again. 
And it's going to be in some different ways that we've approached uh, the angle. For example, as I mentioned earlier, one of the purposes of Christ establishing the church is that it will be His tool to reach those who have not yet come into the faith, to enlist them, bring them into the group that will then receive the glorification at the last day. That's the outreach. That's the evangelistic calling of the church. We've spent a lot of time on that. We're not going to spend our time on that aspect of the calling today. Particularly then, we want to think of, and this is what we see in 42 through 47, in addition to the evangelistic call. We see the church being formed as the instrument to care for and to instruct those who have already been enlisted to participate in the glorification. Not just the outwardness of the church, right? But the care within the church for those who are already brought in. And these ideas or these dynamics that characterize the early church in their care and instruction for those who already belong to the church are also normative for us. In other words, they regulate us. This is our model, or it needs to be. And where we are not in line with these things, we need to repent and we need to come in line with them both as a congregation and as individuals. Let's quickly go through the things then that the church is doing, that Jesus has shaped the church for the care and instruction of those who are here. First of all, notice, what were they devoting themselves to? They devoted themselves continually, they continually devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, by the use of the word teaching, very likely Luke has something broader in mind than just the preaching of the word. When we think of teaching, it's a broader category than preaching. Preaching is done in a specific environment by those specifically trained and called to do so. Teaching is done by those same officers, however it can be in a broader context. Maybe it's in a Bible study. Maybe it's in not in the a course of a formal worship service, but as the church was gathering together, part of what happened, maybe it was even private among some uh, individuals, as I will meet with many people today, right, and instruct them in the truths of God's Word. We have Bible studies where people are instructed in the truth of God's Word. People can even hear the uh, teaching of churches today over things like the Internet. They are devoting themselves as a church, the point here, to the apostles' teaching, whether it be the preaching of the Word of God or the teaching done by the apostles also. Devoting themselves to it. What is the proper posture of a Christian person toward Christian living? What is the proper posture of a Christian person toward their understanding and their growth in the knowledge, say, of the Scripture? I mean, the Apostles' teaching, right, is recorded for us now in the Holy Word of God. Now, what is the proper posture of us as God's people toward the Word? Is it indifference? Is it, say, mere satisfaction with coming to church on Sunday and learning what you hear from the pulpit? Well, I mean, it's certainly that at a minimum at a very minimum. But the people of God in the early church were consumed and devoted to the apostles' teaching. They did not sit content with the fact that they had come to a basic knowledge of the truth that Christ had died for their sins. But they were pursuing all of the truths that the apostles were laying out. And some of those things were very complex, weren't they? And any of us who are students of the Bible will realize, unless we sit under people who oversimplify it, that the Scripture is very complex at some points. 
Peter himself in writing, you know this verse, he says, this is in 2 Peter 3, our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all of his letters. He speaks in his letters of many matters and his letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Here's Peter the Apostle acknowledging that some of the things that Paul writes, the Apostle's teaching, right? Paul the Apostle's teaching. Some of the things that he writes are complex and difficult to understand. And therefore you need to devote yourselves to them. You need to listen to those who have been trained to explain them to you. And it shouldn't just be a matter of passing through church once a week, but devoting yourself to growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Apostles' teaching, which is ours in the Scripture. I mean, practically for us as a church family, you're going to have to figure out the way in which you want to grow and press on in your knowledge of the Word. I mean, it starts at least with faithful attendance to the preaching of the Word. There is no way to soft-pedal the idea that the early church was devoting themselves wholeheartedly to the apostles' teaching. And if you are not in church every week, you are not doing that. Now, the church has been pressed more recently to also offer Bible study, and not just, you know, fluff, which is offered in a lot of places, but in-depth scriptural study, in addition to what is heard on Sunday morning, and by the way, Sunday evenings, where half of our church's preaching ministry takes place, and many of us are absented from it. But if we're devoted to the apostolic preaching and teaching, and now the church will go forward to offer... Bible study. We want to be devoted to the apostolic teaching like the early church, then we're going to make use of it. Or we're going to make use of something in accordance with the Word of God by those who have been appointed uh, to provide that instruction to see that we are rightfully also characterized as those who are devoted to the apostolic teaching. This culture is lazy intellectually and it has infected the church. And dare I say it has infected our own church. There's no excuse for it. Verse 46, this was part of the day by day continuing with one mind. How do you come together as one mind as a church family like the early church was if you're not growing together in the apostolic teaching? You know, growing together with one mind doesn't mean we all come to the same kind of hobbies and the same kind of things that we like to do and we're all going to look the same and have the same kind of personalities. No, coming together as one mind means we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the Scripture. And the only way that happens is if everybody is devoting themselves to that apostolic teaching in the Word of God. Do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? They also, what, devoted themselves to fellowship. Very interesting. Verse 42, they devoted themselves continually to the fellowship. Now, fellowship is a loaded word, especially in our context, isn't it? But if you just read the description a little further on, it, it unpacks what fellowship means, I think, in this context. Look at verse 44. Okay? All the believers were together. First of all, all the believers uh, were together. 
You see, in verse 46, and I'm going to retranslate that for you, so hear it the way I'm reading it. Verse 46, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. In verse 46 in your translation, it, it, uh, it puts the breaking of bread and the meals, almost blends them together as one. It says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together. And they make it sound like the breaking of the bread and the eating together are the same action. And we'll get to that in a minute, but they're not. They're two different things. The one I want to point out here is, what does fellowship mean? First of all, it means that the believers were together. And second of all, it means that they were doing small things in their daily lives together as opposed to separate, like taking their meals. Or in our translation, verse 46, ate. They ate together. Now this might seem simple, but I think this is a fantastic opportunity for us to recognize the great challenge to us in the modern day, and it wasn't any less of a challenge in that day, except by the power of the Spirit and through God's grace, the early church in its early formation was actually living this principle out. The idea of fellowship is that the members of the church actually spend time together. Think of that. That they actually do things that are common in their daily lives. Not anything spectacular like coming together for some weird spiritual experience or everybody to you know, share all their insights or whatever. The idea is that the church would come together to just do what they did in everyday life together. Because when you're bound together by the power of Christ and His Gospel, then you're going to spend time with the people who belong to Him also. So you might do something as simple as eating a meal that you might otherwise eat alone with the people of God. Now what is this going to take? I mean, it's, it's two things, isn't it? The first one really is that you have to be self-sacrificing and you have to take initiative and you have to be someone who is concerned about the interests and the concerns of somebody else beside yourself in your small, narrow world. We were not created as the people of God. I mean, we were created as a race originally to be isolated from other people. One of the, the strict or, or the strong temptations in our society with all of its technological advances is that basically you can sit in your own house or your own apartment or your own room with a telephone and a computer and a television and you can get everything you need provided for and you never have to face another living soul. Now that, of course, is the extreme example of anti-community. But the ones that we all struggle with are much more available to us, right? Or less extreme, but just as dangerous to building the fellowship that characterized the early church. I mean, actually spend time with each other. Think about having meals, maybe, with people who are in the church family. People who maybe live in your neighborhood if you are a commuter to this church, right? If you don't live right around here, likely somebody lives somewhere near you and you've got to be self-sacrificing and take the initiative and be someone who actually cares about somebody else beside yourself and your own concerns and problems and issues. That's the first half of it. People have always often asked the church, what is the church doing to fill in the blank? You know, what is the church doing to foster fellowship? What are you doing to? And it's a very... Uh, a good desire, but it's often a very strong tone as if it is the responsibility of the church 
to organize the daily activities of your life with the other members of this church. No. You need to take the initiative. You need to be self-sacrificing. And think about sharing time, common time, with those of your church family who you might otherwise not spend any time with because you are united by the Spirit in Christ with them. That's what the early church was doing. That was the sense of community that they had. You know, the church is not some theological club, right? Where, you know, all that, all that everybody else really is good for is little banter back and forth about the latest book that we read. I mean, that's certainly an important part of the life of our church, being devoted to the apostles' teaching and that application of it, but it is not the only thing. And it's not a place just for us to come with us and our families to get what we need to go sp- grow spiritually and then go home and that's the end of it. No. This is a community being shaped because people need each other. And if you don't think you need anybody, then you're lying to yourself because you need community. I've seen some, by God's grace, in this congregation who have excelled in seeking out the ones who have been alienated the ones who are always standing off in the corner, nobody will speak with them. Some in this congregation have excelled in seeking them out and making them feel warm and welcomed. And that is an example of grace in this congregation. And we commend us ourselves to continue to seek after those who we would otherwise not as Christ sought after us. Quickly, too, the second half of that is you have to be approachable yourself. Okay? You know there are those of us, and I am guilty of this, certainly, those of us who, who feel like the opportunity for community in the church is an opportunity for me then to just, you know, promote whatever I'm thinking about or, you know, turn every conversation around to what I want to talk about. Maybe I've got some cause. Maybe I've got some ideas. Maybe I've got some problems even. And I have no consideration at times about what the other person, how they might be hearing what we're saying. You have no consideration about making yourself approachable and actually pleasing and encouraging to be around as opposed to an albatross and a burden so that nobody wants to spend any time with you. No thought of maybe, how about not saying anything about yourself in the conversation, but completely just being quiet and affirming the other one and asking about their life and how they're doing. You have to be self-sacrificing and take the initiative and you also have to work on your own social graces so that you'll be approachable. All fostering what? Community. Fellowship. Now you may not like, you may not like, it doesn't sound spiritual enough or whatever, but this is the characterization of the early church that we've got to follow. We do common things together. And we spend time together. There's another aspect to fellowship too. Look at this, verse 44. They had everything in common. Verse 45, selling their possessions and good they gave to everyone as he has need. Now this is not saying, okay, that everybody who joined the early church would sell all of their possessions immediately according to God's command and give it to the apostles and then the apostles would distribute it whatever everybody needed according to what they thought. This is not the model. I mean, in one sense, that would be easier, wouldn't it? It would have been easier for the apostles to command 
that everybody sell all of what they had and then they will give back to each one according to what they think they have need. But Christ did not order the church that way, so the apostles would not have the audacity to do that. It's interesting that some groups and some teachers do teach things that way, and that's absolutely contrary to the Scripture. Uh, You'll see later that actually people within the church would be made known of, of the needs of the congregation and then people would respond and make commitments. And then they would follow through on those commitments. They would be prompted individually by the Spirit of God. Having been the need, having been made known by the leaders of the church, they would be prompted to, uh, to make vows to fulfill those needs. And they could be held accountable to those vows. Uh, but the church isn't uh, pooling all their resources out of necessity at all times. What it does say is, and this will be explained more as we go on in the book of Acts. But what it does say, clearly, is that everyone who was part of the church had the mind that what they had materially was not their own, but belonged to Christ and was to be used for the purposes of the advancement of their church. So it it did happen then when the church had need or when people... The application of it is obvious, right? When the deacons come to us today and say we have recognized these benevolence needs and we need more money for the benevolence fund, then we rise as a congregation voluntarily by the power of the Spirit to fulfill, uh, to make those offerings and give the church what she needs. And if the church, through the input of the congregation, makes decisions financially for the daily operating of the church, for the expansion of the kingdom through outreach and evangelism and church planting, or even for things as, as uh, banal as uh, facility maintenance... Right? Then what? The people of God hear that and respond. They see that what they have belongs and is to be used for the advancement of the church. This is this word fellowship. How am I getting it there? The word fellowship is also could be translated, as it is in other places, a partnership. A partnership or people participating together. And partnership, even in English, has that idea of, of, of financial overtones, doesn't it? We are a community that sets financial uh, things to do also in advancement of the kingdom and taking care of our own, and we have to be committed to doing that. That's part of what fellowship means. The the other part of it too, you see at the end here, how they are gathered. They are coming together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They are coming together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That's the end of verse 46. With glad and sincere hearts. Now this means that as a Christian community, as a Christian church, when people see us and us as members of that church in our lives, that we should be joyful. Okay? It it means what it says. We need to be joyful. Is it only my observation that historic confessional reformed churches in the lives of their people, sometimes in a great imbalance, seem like there's not a lot of joy. How, how does that possibly make sense if we believe that we have been predestined by God the Father, having looked at us in our hopeless, lost, rebellious condition, on the path to hell in our blindness, blindness and ignorance. And He comes 
to live and die for our sins and rise from the dead and promises us that He's going to raise us someday too and that He will glorify us and even the difficult things that we face in this life, those sad, are, even those are turned for our good and for our salvation. Now how can we not be joyful? I mean, I understand if we don't believe those things, if, if somehow maybe we think we're trying to work toward our salvation and maybe, um, you know, maybe we've let... Uh, sin go uninhibited now in our life. We've neglected the means of grace and we haven't repented from our sins and we keep fighting and grieving the Spirit and we hate God and hate our neighbor. We're living ungodly. I mean, I understand if we're in that position why we will not have any joy in our lives. But even in the face of trials, we as members of the Ontario URC ought to be saying, I have great joy in my heart. I'm glad that the Lord has purchased me and I belong to Him. Now, this is not saying that you aren't sad when difficult circumstances come in your life, but that deep down, undergirding who you are, the core of your being, you are joyful in Christ, that you belong to Him, and that the glorification is coming. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, We know, brothers, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia, Macedonia and Acacia, Achaia. In spite of severe suffering, so even in the midst of their severe suffering in Thessalonica, they welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. That nothing that man can do to me now and no circumstance in my life can overthrow the power of Christ in me. He has delivered Himself from my sins. He, he rose from the dead and I will be raised and rewarded for His righteousness. And therefore, I am glad. I am restored now to the purpose for which I was created. I'm in, I belong to a community that proclaims Christ and worships Him. And I with joy and gladness go forward with them. You have the right and the privilege to be happy as a child of God no matter what your circumstance. Some of you will never be joyful unless you're healthy or unless you have enough money. Because that's what the culture tells you. In order to be joyful, you've got to be healthy and you've got to have enough money. And your life has to be worked out exactly how you want. And you've got to be fulfilled and satisfied in all your relationships and everything else people can come up with. You won't be happy unless you're sitting in front of the television. No. We're joyful in the Lord and glad, and we're not ashamed of it because we belong to Christ. And let's reflect that in our countenance. Let's not be the ones who drag people down, but lift people up. As a result, it says there that they had favor with all of the people. Even unbelievers, you see, who are lost in their sin and ignorance would rather be around someone who is glad and joyful and stable than someone who drags them down even worse than their unbelieving friends. So even by common grace, people would rather be around those who are joyful. And we as the people of God have the joy of the Holy Spirit in us, the joy of our salvation, and embrace it. It's a great thing to have. Privilege to have. We'll have to pick up next time on them devoting themselves to the breaking of the bread, which means the Lord's Supper, and devoting themselves to prayer.
But if you've been at all convicted that you are out of step in any way with the early church like I have been, then we need to conform ourselves to this. We're to be used as the tool by Christ, by His Spirit to care and instruct, care for and instruct those who are marked out for the glorification. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for uh, Your call to us as a church and as members of the church to spend time with each other, to do common things together. Thank You for the call that that means we need to be self-sacrificing and looking out for the interests of others, not just ourselves. Thank You for the call that that is to make ourselves approachable and uh, that we would not be annoying and and consumed by our own uh, issues and troubles. Lord, if we would uh, follow Christ and be selfless, what uh, joy and gladness would erupt in our midst. And uh, our holding out the word of life by our lives would be so much more clear uh, to those even who are rebelling against you. Heavenly Father, be merciful to us and shape us according uh, to that way. Help us also be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Help us to stop neglecting the means of grace. There is no excuse, Father, for forsaking public worship in in any sense. Unless, Lord, we be sick, that we can't come. Uh, Lord, heal our, our church. Cause us to repent from that. Lord, help us to worship twice if we are able financially and if we're healthy enough to come in the evenings. Lord, cause us, if we are able to submit to the apostolic teaching wherever else it be offered, would we be a church that is devoted to the apostolic teaching also? Lord, grow us in these ways and strengthen us even now through the Lord's Supper for this thankful obedience. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our song is number 111.